Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Most of the interviews that we do on The Politics Guys are, well, maybe you'd call them at least slightly wonky. We talk to a lot of political scientists, economists, uh, that sort of thing. Today's interview is different. I'm talking with Sheila Tate, who was the press secretary to First Lady Nancy Reagan from 1981 to 1985. You might say, why would you talk to the press secretary of a first lady who was first lady quite a while ago? Well, there are a couple of reasons I wanted to just briefly get into before we get to the interview. First off is that Ronald Reagan was really the first president that I was sort of politically aware of, I guess you could say, growing up. And I had a deep fascination with Reagan. I was a embarrassingly large Reagan sort of fanboy, if you will, uh, an odd thing to be a fan of maybe a president, but when you're a kid. But I mean, I had uh, coffee mugs. I had all kinds. Of, I read all the books and I, I actually had, uh, believe it or not, a Ronald Reagan, let's call it an action figure. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's how deep it went. And so I knew a lot about Reagan or I thought I did. But I always had this sort of caricature view of Nancy Reagan as this sort of evil, cold dragon lady uh, and who was this well fierce protector of her husband. Now, part of that, I think, was true. But also, I had a sense that Nancy Reagan was a more influential and powerful first lady in many ways than a lot of maybe the first ladies who have come since her. And so when I had the opportunity to talk to Sheila about her experiences with Nancy Reagan, I thought it would be pretty fascinating. And and I looked at, you know, I read the book and I thought it was a very interesting book. It gave me a view of Nancy Reagan that I just simply didn't have before. And so for those reasons, I thought that a talk with Sheila Tate would be a very interesting thing. I certainly enjoyed it and I hope you do too. Thanks. My guest today is Sheila Tate, who served as press secretary to First Lady Nancy Reagan from 1981 to 1985. After leaving the White House staff, she co-founded the Washington, D.C. public relations firm Powell Tate. She served as press secretary to George H.W. Bush during his successful campaign for the presidency in 1988, as well as for his transition. Sheila remained in close touch with Nancy Reagan after the Reagans returned to California, speaking with her often until Mrs. Reagan's passing in 2016. Ms. Tate is the author of the recently released book, The Lady in Red, An Intimate Portrait of Nancy Reagan. Sheila Tate, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you and to your listeners. You know, to start with, I don't think that most people necessarily have a very good sense of what exactly first ladies do. And uh, based on you know your time with Nancy Reagan, I think you're certainly in a unique position to give us some insight as to, as to that. So I was wondering if we could, could start by you talking a little bit about how Nancy Reagan approached the job of first lady. Well, I mean, the, the key to understanding what any first lady does is that the job has no job description. And so each one figures it out for herself. Um, so it's, you know, there's not any set pattern um, for a first lady. But I, my sense is that a first lady is 
as influential as her relationship is uh, tied to how close she is to her husband. Um, You know, people will tell you that, you know, maybe Mamie Eisenhower or or Bess Truman were just, um, you know, kind of off in the corner because they they didn't have close relations with their spouse. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were a team, and and uh, um, you know she she had no interest in getting involved in in policy discussions on the West Wing of the White House. But she um, she certainly what she cared about was him, and that he was um, properly um, managed. I think is the right word. I guess in the sense that everyone else around the president or most everyone else around the president has some sort or often many ulterior other mo- motives, uh, interests, that sort of thing. But with with the first lady, if there is that close relationship, presumably her one of her primary uh, motives or if not the primary motive is what's best for the president, basically. That's exactly right. And so I can see why that would be very valuable. And and I I don't think necessarily that, I mean, the the other, the staffers who worked for the, for the president, for example, had, you know, they had responsibilities and and they had huge demands on them, on themselves, Um, not, nothing self-serving at all, but, but um, there's just a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of pressure to jam the schedule, for instance, and and Nancy Reagan, once we were out of town, and she once showed me his schedule, and she said, look at the way they pack this schedule. She said, especially when I'm gone. She said, but he doesn't work well that way. He needs a break between meetings. And so she would get on the phone with uh, Mike Deaver or whoever and say, you know, you got to reduce this schedule a bit. And then they would send a new one, and it would be definitely more manageable. And and I mean that's a, I think that's a good positive um, contribution to make to make to the president of the United States. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And some people would say, well, you know, you would hope that a chief of staff would do some of that, but of course, oftentimes presidents and chiefs of staff they're not necessarily uh, as connected or as close, certainly as say, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were. Well, a good one is is pretty well connected. I mean, someone like Jim Baker. Uh, but there, but there's pressure on him. He's got 50 people that are, you know, banging the door down to see the president, and he has to try to manage that process. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think some people might wonder, well, what exactly does a press secretary for a first lady do? And so I was wondering also if you could talk a little bit about, first off, how you ended up as Mrs. Reagan's press secretary and what that job involved. Well, um Sort of like a lot of things in my life, it just sort of happened. <laughs> I uh, I was working at a big PR firm in Washington, and my boss was um, had was a friend of the Reagans, and he had gone over to the uh, campaign and been the communications director. And um, I stayed back in the, the office to run some business, and and he called me one day and said, "I need your resume." There's a job at the White House, and I think you're qualified for it, and I'd like to get you in in consideration. So I sent him the resume, and two hours later he called me and said, 
it's four o'clock. By six o'clock, I need you at Blair House. Wow. And he still hadn't, he said, I can't tell you what the job is, but I kind of figured it out because there was talk that Nancy Reagan was unhappy with the, the press secretary she had hired initially, who was from California and um, was, you know, interested in somebody else. And so I suspected that's what it was. But when I got there, um, we sat down and talked, and I was a nervous wreck. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, were, I, I do. I literally remember putting my hands underneath my legs so that you wouldn't see how they were shaking. I mean, that's sort of, you know, it's the first time yeah. I'd ever met anybody like that. And um, so I finally settled down, and we talked, and, and she told me um, that she really wanted to get involved in youth drug abuse. And at the time, I remember thinking, what a depressing subject. And, you know, not the traditional kind of thing a first lady has done in the past. And and um, so we had a nice conversation, but she never said what the job was. So when I left, I thanked her and went my merry way. And I thought, well, that was interesting, but I don't know what it was all about. So the next day they called and asked me to start meeting with Mike Deaver and a whole bunch of people, ending up with Jim Jim Brady. And Jim Brady said, you know, it's down to two people. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And and uh, he said, well, I'm voting for you. And I said, well, I want the job. <laughs> and so so uh, two hours later, she called and offered me the job. And this was, this was mid-December of 1980, you know, like 10 days before the inauguration. So I went to work. That was on a Friday night. I went to work on Monday morning, but not until the press, till the Washington Post got a leak and the story was all over the papers on Sunday. So that was the beginning of my, and, and I walked into my transition office and sitting there waiting for me was Barbara Walters. Wow, well, there you go. <laughs> Surprise. That was the beginning, yeah. So so what, what exactly did, did the job involve? Well, I was expected to be with her anywhere that she had an event separate from the president. For instance, if she went with the president to the ranch, I didn't have to go. But if she went, um, I don't know, to um, Phoenix, Arizona with him, to visit, she was going to visit her mother, and he had a speech, but she also had a speech, Well, that, and I had to be there. Anytime she was in public, I had to be there. So all, I traveled the world with her basically, and almost every place I can think of in the United States. That's just part of it. The other part, of course, is care and feeding of the press corps. And I had to I had to help the press get to know her, and that probably took a good year of, you know, very... She, she was very wary of the press, and, and um, we spent a good deal of time making her comfortable and then having the press start to get a sense of who she was. I also like to ask you before I, before I forget actually uh, about about your book. I mean, uh, now you were press secretary for Mrs. Reagan from 81 to 85, but you stayed in touch after until her until her death. And so, why did you why did you decide to write about your your time uh, with with Nancy Reagan? You know, I I never I was I was approached by several publishers when I first left the White House. I had no interest, and and I didn't necessarily I didn't like the idea. Um, I didn't like people that 
you know, left a, a position where they had to have a lot of personal um, in, insight and and experience with 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 a an official, and then run out and write about it. Um, but when I went to her her memorial service, I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said that they wished that more people knew the Nancy we knew. And that is so true. I mean, there was still kind of a a cardboard cutout um, uh, vision of her among many people. And, and I, I mean, I, I still get people who say, well, what was she really like? You know, that kind of stuff. And um, so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, maybe. Took me another year to say, "Well, let me give it a try." So that's how it happened. I mean, it just it it just accident. It was an accidental decision. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, I, I actually I have I have memories of uh, the Reagan presidency. I I sort of was a a kid in the 1980s, and I was uh, sort of precociously following politics. And I, when I when I uh, think of Nancy Reagan, the, the first thing that comes to my mind—it's probably not that unusual—is just say no. And you talk about that campaign in the book, and I'm guessing you would you would say would you characterize that as her major sort of issue policy focus? Yes, absolutely. And. I mean, you know, her staff kept trying to talk her out of it. We came up with all sorts of other options. And she finally said, if I'm going to do something for four years or even eight years, it's got to be something I care about. I mean, those are her exact words. And it was like, so stop all this alternatives. We're going to do this. Now figure out how we're going to do it. And that, that really is how it came to be. She led us. We didn't lead her. Did they think it was sort of too dark for a first lady yeah. to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about, you know, first ladies had been involved in beautification and, um, you know, kind of ethereal things. And, and it just, um, it seemed too heavy. And, and, you know, what was her I kept thinking, what's her expertise in this issue? Well, she didn't have any, except that her dear friend, Art Linkletter, lost his daughter who had a flashback from taking LSD and jumped off a roof and killed herself. And she she told us that story, and, and I've always stuck with it because she really was um, adamant about doing this. And she And she said, you know, nobody, even Art Linkletter, nobody had any idea. Nobody knew what to do. And that's what's going. That was what was going on then. People would find out their child was on drugs, and they didn't know what to do. We found out there were all these parent groups that had just come up through the grassroots. People who, you know, gathered together and made themselves intelligent on the issue, educated themselves, and started becoming very active grassroots uh, organized. And and they. Um, I mean, they still exist. They're, they're, they have a big national conference in Atlanta every year. Um, but, but it, you know, it was finding these groups and starting to meet with them and, and going to the different treatment centers and figuring out, making sure they were all legitimate and, you know, there wasn't any problems. Um, and that took us the better part of a year. And, and um, we set out finally, she started raising money for the, for the, the straight ink and um, 
couple of other uh, very well-known treatment centers and in New York and all, all over the place. We went down to see Ross Perot, <clears throat> who uh, started the Texas War on Drugs. And he had parent groups that were very well organized. And she met with them. Um, I mean, and then she started meeting with the, the kids themselves. And the kids really responded well to her. And it was probably three years into it or maybe four before um, she they finally developed the, the just say no name for it. It just was, you know, it was just, it was what it was. When we hauled press along with us and they were very skeptical at first. And over time, they really came to uh, recognize her commitment because we'd be dragging and she'd, she'd still be pulling us along. I mean, she really, really cared about the issue. And kids really, really listened to her. And I have in my book a number of, um, statistics from the top, from that era and it shows a significant impact in the age group she was targeting so i mean there there's there are some people of course when they heard the campaign initially there was sort of a certain amount of eye rolling and that kind of thing but but i take it then that uh that mrs reagan felt that actually that that she was making a positive impact and that's you know your argument in the book as well she really was i mean there it's 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 without question. All you have to do is read the the stats on it. And it's too bad that, you know, once a first lady leaves office, she loses a lot of that platform. Nancy Reagan kept working on it. Um, I wish somebody would pick up the mantle now and, and deal with the opioid crisis. You know, I, there one other thing that Probably the second biggest thing that pops into my mind when I think of Nancy Reagan, aside from the her, her the appearance on Different Strokes, which is a whole <laughs> different story, um, right? But that she was just very, very protective of her husband, and there was right. this sort of idea that Nancy Reagan was kind of like the dragon lady, and you know, even there were right. some staffers apparently who felt that she was too tough on them when she felt they weren't acting in the best interests of the of the president and that sort of thing. I, Obviously, you spent a lot of time with Nancy Reagan. How much truth to that was there? I mean, is that a is this a that a mischaracterization of her? Yeah. Well, yeah. Mainly, uh, she, um, she she wasn't shy about um, being critical of someone if, in fact, she uh, recognized that they they were more concerned about their own interests and less about his. And in fact, a lot of people I've talked to, one of the first things they say, former staffers, is that she was an incredibly good, um, she was incredibly good at determining someone's motives. And, uh, and she was, a, she understood character, you know, she saw it. And she saw when people were out for themselves and less interested in the president's agenda, um, which is a good thing. I mean, that is protective. But you know what's interesting about the whole, um, I, I believed I understood exactly why she was as protective of him as she was, and that it's, it stemmed from the fact that she was left with um, an aunt and uncle in, when she was two years old, because her mother had to go on the road as an actress, and her mother would come back, you know, with some regularity, but she wasn't living with her for six years. And that had to have made her terribly insecure. And I thought, you know, that would make her very protective of what she has. 
And so I was talking to her brother, Dick Davis, the neurosurgeon in Philadelphia. And he, I, I told him my theory, and I thought he would, he would agree with me. And he said, that has nothing to do with it. I said, no. He said, I can tell you exactly why she was that, why she was protective. And I said, well, tell me. And he said, she was exactly mirroring, mirroring her mother. She, he said, Edie, Edie Davis, when, he, when she married uh, Dick Davis, the, the neurosurgeon out in Chicago, she became his protector. And, and he said, if anyone dared say anything even mildly critical of Loyal Davis, the wrath of Edie would descend upon them. And, he, and it was very, he was laughing about it. But he said, that's exactly the way Nancy is. When she, when she thinks someone is attacking her husband, she, she comes after him. Um, she, well, there's a, there's a, um, a, a, Fred Fielding, who was our White House counsel and a fabulous lawyer, um, he, when he, wanted to leave the White House after about four and a half years, um, she got very upset with him. And he, he, he's, he's got a, a staff memory section that I got him to write for me and where he talks about it. And he said that when she would call, he would, he would, it was hard on him because he was trying to quit smoking. And when she would call, he'd start smoking again. <laughs> and, but he, he said, when she, he said, I, I felt so bad about leaving based on her being so upset about it. He said, I went home, I came back into work the next day, and Nancy was calling. I thought, oh, it's going to start all over again. And he said, she called me to apologize, to say that was really out of line of me to talk that way. He, she, she said she had talked to her husband, and he had said, Fred Fielding has stayed longer than anyone else in that capacity. Um, he's, he's got financial issues he really needs to address, and I've appreciated his service. And Nancy said that uh, she was embarrassed that she had yelled at him, apparently. So, and they, they became friend, friends again. So, so I guess that sort of the, the dragon lady type thing was, was true, but only in the sense that when she, she sniffed out opportunists who were trying to take advantage exactly. of the other way of the president, then she would kind of pounce very fiercely, and they obviously were not too crazy about being found out and kind of pushed aside. And there was, you know, there was also um, what I noticed, a lot of the, the West Wing fellas um, would get very nervous around her. And it was not because that she had ever done anything to deserve it, but that they, they seemed to understand how much implied power she had based on the fact that, that she had such a good relationship with her husband. You know, in uh, the book, you mentioned something, it really caught my attention. Uh, say you wrote that uh, you thought that Nancy Reagan was a natural diplomat. And I, I guess I was sort of surprised <laughs> by that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you felt or how you saw her as an asset to the president on foreign right. trips or, you know, when, when foreign leaders and dignitaries would, would come to the White House. Right. Well, you know, I had the same first reaction because my editor said, I want you to think about writing a chapter of Nancy Reagan as a, in, in her diplomacy. And I thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then the more I thought about it, the more I read uh, my old notes and things, it, uh, she really was. She made so many friends for us 
during that time. And that's what I mean by diplomacy. Um, for instance, they were in China, um, and the the um, what, do you, what the lead, Chinese leader, um, his he started flirting with her in front of the cameras, and he said to her, he said, "Well, one thing we had done this great. You may remember this. We had done this wonderful campaign where we asked children from across America to send us their pennies, and as it was pennies for pandas, the pandas." Um, were suffering in China because of lack of bamboo. And so we were buying bamboo and getting it to China. And so he he personally publicly thanked her for what she was doing for the children of China and helping them um, get bamboo for the pandas. And then he said, um, I would like to have you come visit China again, but please, without your husband this time. <laughs> and and, um, and there, was the, the, um, there was a great story that she told me about. Um, she was in Germany with, uh, in fact, this was in a, in a newspaper article. Hannelore Schmidt, the German chancellor's wife, they were standing and there, there was this huge sprawl of photographers, news photographers, and you have to stand there forever and smile. And she said to her, how do you keep smiling during all this? And Nancy Reagan said, I have a secret. Just start saying the alphabet without moving your lips. And it forces you into a smile. <laughs> wow. And so the two of them stood there and smiled. But the, and, and that's the way you make personal sure. friends, you know. And it was that kind of, of um, thing that... Uh, that I felt was grounds for saying she had, she really was a great diplomat. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting to me because the oftentimes the the feel or the the remembrance I think that some people have of, of Nancy Reagan is her being sort of cold and distant and imperious and that sort of thing. But that that suggests someone who's very different from that. Totally different. I mean, totally different. She, uh, you should have heard her gushing about uh, Giverny and how she wanted to stay there the rest of her life. It was so beautiful, Monet's home. And, um, I mean, if she liked you, if she, she got to, she had a wonderful sense of humor for all of, all of us experienced that, but, but most, most Americans didn't. I mean, all our staff, the staff knew it. Um, she once told me a story that, and I cannot for the life of me remember who this was or why she was there, but she visited Nancy Reagan up in the residence. They were having tea or something. And Nancy Reagan was wearing a wraparound skirt. And she stood up to say goodbye to her guest, and her skirt fell off. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and, and, and she said, she looked at the woman, and she said, well, I guess this is one meeting you'll never forget. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she, she was able to make light of herself. And, I, you know, I wish more people had seen that part of her. You know, I, I, of course, most listeners, I'm sure, know that not that long after leaving the White House, President Reagan w was diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's disease. And, and obviously, he and, he and Nancy had to find a way to 
deal with that until the president's death in 2004. And I'm sure this was, you know, devastating, very tough for her, uh, as it is, you know, for all spouses, people with Alzheimer's. But I would think especially for someone who just seems so incredibly devoted to her husband, as Nancy Reagan was. And so you obviously had had, you know, were in communication with her. How, uh-huh. how was that for her? How did she, how did she cope and get through that difficult time? She just kept saying, he's, you know, the sad part is that he's, this was supposed to be our golden years, and, and, and she said he's losing all the memories. Yeah. And what she did is she just, she just um, shrunk her world, and she almost never left the house. She would go, she would, um, Robert Taylor was a friend of theirs, and, and he had long since died, but, but his widow lived up the street from the Reagans in the home they bought after they returned to the, from the White House. And she used to walk up the street on Saturdays and have lunch with her at her house. And other than occasionally going, you know, with if Mike Deaver or somebody came into town and they'd go out to the Bel Air Hotel, I went out to, out there once with her, you know, and have lunch, and that was it. I mean, she just she didn't want to be away from him. So she just continued to, you know, and I always said, you know, her protectiveness when he was sick, um, was heralded. But when she was protective at the White House, she was given, mm-hmm. you know, she was berated. It's really interesting. But but she was the same person. You know, she behaved the same way in both circumstances. And, and of course, she, she survived him by, I think, with 12, 12 years, I, I believe, it, yeah, I believe yeah. it was. And so that period without him had to be, had to be a, a very difficult adjustment as well, I would imagine. She she would come back to Washington periodically. I mean, for instance, you know when when the Reagan Building was dedicated, and um, he and when he was awarded various um, honorifics. Um, so I think I think probably you know that took a lot of her her focus, um, just just thinking about his uh, legacy. I have one final question for you. Uh, you know, what would you say, thinking about Nancy Reagan, that most people or the people maybe most commonly misunderstand about her or get wrong about her? You know, the biggest misconceptions, I guess, because I, I got the sense in, you know, you're talking about writing the book that people didn't know, many people didn't know the real Nancy to Nancy that you knew and staffers knew. So what are those big misconceptions you were really hoping to to correct by this portrait of her? You know, one of the biggest ones was that she was kind of humorless and nothing could be further from the truth. And all you have to do is read the last chapter of my book, which is the story of a dog named Digby. And this was as she was dying and she maintained a sense of humor this is just days before she died. I don't want to. I don't want to give that, that right. away because no, I really no want spoilers. people to yeah. read yeah. that 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 paragraph. To me, that chapter is my favorite chapter in the book. And and I I put off writing that last chapter for a long time because it, the the idea depressed me. Everybody that I talked to, I said, "What do you What do you miss now that she's gone?" And they said, "Hearing her voice." And that's exactly how I felt. I mean. Nothing was more comforting than this call saying, Sheila. <laughs> and then she would she'd talk for half an hour and and um you know, I'd be trying to 
to work on client business. And at the time, I occasionally thought this was terribly inconvenient. And now I treasure every moment of it, really. I'm just, I'm, I can't tell you what a great friend she became. Do you think that part of that is that misconception is that that at least I always picture, you know, the picture on, on the cover of Lady in Red is, I think, is just really fitting in, in how I see Nancy Reagan, sort of a, sort of a almost regal sort of look. Mm-hmm. And that just, mm-hmm. that just from a visual just feels kind of maybe distancing to some people. And maybe that didn't kind of let out those elements of her personality. Well, you know, she was very elegant. Yeah. And that, that picture, that's her, that's her official White House portrait. So she picked that. So there, there I knew she, that's something that she liked very much. And, um, I mean, she, she, is, she was a very pretty woman. And um, I think she was, that a lot of people are, were sort of put off by her. She was just stunning. And, and she was reserved. She, you know, she'd never, she would never uh, do anything inappropriate in public, but she was a lot of fun in private. She'd put her feet up and we'd, laugh over all kinds of things. All right. Well, with that, we will close. Sheila Tate, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I should I should mention it was really something reading Lady in Red because I came away from the book uh, when I when I closed it, uh, having a very different view of Nancy of the Nancy Reagan I thought I knew, and so uh, it was a, a great experience for me, and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for taking the well, time. That was my that was my whole purpose. Well, it worked the more for me. I hear that, the happier I am. <laughs> well, <laughs> well mission, mission accomplished. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You bet. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.